I'd invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. We continue uh, that series and um, in the evening service tonight we'll begin a brief Advent um, series looking at the promise of the Messiah in the the minor prophets, but we'll continue with Samuel in the morning and looking at chapter 6 today, which uh, the the passage here carries over into the first verse of chapter 7. This is page 229. If you need to use uh, the Pew Bible that's provided for you, 229. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should... You harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side and figures but at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way of its own land to Beth Shemesh, when it is he, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so. And took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. 
These are the golden tumors that the Philistines return as guild offerings to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it now. Uh, back in uh, 2022, Texas Governor Greg Abbott made headlines, some of you might uh, remember, uh, when he chartered a bus from Eagle Pass, Texas to Manhattan and put on that bus 50 illegal immigrants, um, sending them to New York City. And uh, the point, the political point that he was making was, was clear. He was trying to get the attention of East Coast, uh, East Coast uh, elites, uh, political elites, uh, and, and kind of awaken them and alert them uh, to do something about the border crisis. Uh, he sent more than one bus. Eventually, some 4,000 immigrants were, were bussed over to New York from Texas. And though he initially welcomed them with open arms, uh, pretty soon... Uh, Mayor Eric Adams of Manhattan uh, realized there was a problem that that also needed to be dealt with. And he was soon pleading with the federal government to aid them as their shelters were overrun, their resources were were tapped out. So Abbott and Adams, the governor and the mayor, uh, completely different sides of the political spectrum, um, ended up making the same point that the immigrant issue in America needed fixed, but they didn't want to be the ones to fix it. And so they tried to pass it off to someone else. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant has been on a similar journey in the past few chapters of 1 Samuel. Previously, it was shipped from one Philistine city to the next, to the next, to the next, because nobody wanted uh, to deal with the uh, cloud of judgment that would come over whichever city happened to be housing the ark, and so finally, now they say, "Let's send it back to Israelite territory," um, and we'll see. Even then, the Israelites who receive it after a while don't want to have it anymore. Why is this? Well, it's because this this Yahweh box—that's what it would seem to be to the Philistines—but this ark is the presence of God. God is holy, and His holiness deals with our sin sometimes in very hard and very heavy ways. The Philistines didn't want to deal with that, but neither did the Israelites. Neither did God's own people. I wonder if that surprises us, um, that even God's people sometimes uh, don't want to face 
uh, his judgment and what he calls in terms of responding to sin and and repentance. Uh, Interestingly, God doesn't play favorites. He never bends his standards. We might expect that he would have been lenient on the people of Israel, the people that he was in covenant with. And yet, as we talked about last time, his glory is his, his, his weightiness, his reality, right? His utter realness. He can't be ignored. He can't be avoided. And he's not a wax nose that we can twist into be whatever we want him to be. He is the holy God. And the holy God is the God before whom sinners, of which we all are, we're all sinners, before whom sinners say, who can stand before you? Right? That's what the Israelites say at the end of this chapter. So is there any hope for you or me if God's judgment comes not only on his enemies, but even also those who would call themselves his people? Is there any hope for you or me? And as we will see, our hope is this, that God's judgment has also come upon his son, which spares us our judgment. Let's consider those things together. First, the judgment upon God's enemies, the judgment of God against his enemies. We started to see that last time in chapter 5, where God's wrath manifested itself in increasing ways through the destruction first of the Philistines' idols, and then secondly, the destruction of their bodies. But it continues here, if you look with me at verse 1, it continues for seven months. For more than half a year, the Philistines are living under the curse of God and endure the pain of plague, And it's finally now in verse 2, seven months later, that the Philistines uh, make a decision that the ark needs to go back to its homeland. And I think, you know, the natural question is, and I think the author wants us to ask this question, that's why he gives us the seven-month time marker in verse 1. The question is this, why did it take so long? What took so long for them to realize we should probably send this back home? And the answer is simply this. Sin makes us stubborn, and it makes us stupid. It makes us stubborn and stupid. And we see both of those things in this text. First, the stubbornness. The, the Philistines had, in their view, earned that ark after a hard-earned uh, victory. Uh, to give it up would be to admit defeat in a battle that they were convinced they had won against the Israelites. They would rather endure than the fear, uh, the anxiety, even the physical pain that God's presence brought against them than admit that maybe, maybe they hadn't actually been victorious against Yahweh or against his people. They're stubborn in that way. And I want you to note, by turning to Romans 1 with me, as we look at Romans 1, we discover that that stubbornness is in itself a form of judgment. Look at Romans 1 as Paul explains this, uh, beginning in verse 18. We see that the stubbornness is, is itself a sign of the wrath of God. Verse 18 of Romans 1, and then after we look at some verses here, we will go back to 1 Samuel, so keep your place there too. Romans 1 says this, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, that's the Philistines, right? They are truth suppressors. 
Um, God has revealed his glory to them, his realness, his reality, time and time again, and yet they keep ignoring him. They suppress the truth. They've turned a blind eye. Well, then we skip over to verse 21, and we read this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. This folly is the judgment. Look at verse 24 then. It says, therefore, God gave them up. God doesn't turn their hearts to him, but he allows their hearts to become hardened. He gives them up to all sorts of sin, all sorts of ignorance. He allows this darkness to continue to manifest itself over them. That's part of his judgment. This stubbornness is part of God's judgment. And so, as we uh, consider this story here in Samuel, we might think now, as they say, I think it's time to send the ark back. We might think, well, they finally have wised up, but this is not wisdom. This is still folly. Um, What they're doing is not wisdom because wisdom is turning to God, not turning from God. And that's what they're doing here. They're not bowing the knee before Yahweh. They're saying, let's get Yahweh out of our country. It's self-preservation. This is guilt. This is not repentance. Matthew Henry says that the unconverted, when they feel the pressure of God's judgment, when they feel the pressure of God's wrath, Matthew Henry says they would rather, if it were possible, put him far from them then enter into a covenant and commune with him and make him their friend. Those in rebellion to God, rather than become friends with God, which would solve all of their problems, would rather try to put him far from them. But he says, as if that were possible, right? So even as they seek wisdom from their priests and their, their um, religious leaders, uh, they're not actually um, given wisdom, they're given folly, Uh, We see their stupidity still comes through. The priests know that Yahweh is real. They know that he's hardened people's hearts before. He did that to Pharaoh. They mention that in verse 6. And yet, rather than saying, so it's, it's best that we worship him, that we honor him, that we bow before him, they say maybe it would be best that we bribe him. I mean, he's the real deal. So we should probably pay him off, right? The plan is clear. Uh, the, uh, even if it's, um, the details are a little confusing, here's, here's the overall idea. We're going to send the ark back, and we're going to send it with a bunch of gifts so that that will appease um, uh, the wrath of Yahweh. They call them guilt offerings in verse 4, um, and verse 3 and verse 4. And then the people ask, well, what is the guilt offering? And here's where it gets a little confusing. We get what they're doing. We, we maybe don't understand the details. It says, send five golden tumors and five golden mice. There's some, you know, they make some sense here, right, that there's an acknowledgement of God's harsh judgment, um, at least in the tumors. They're making replicas, images of golden tumors to acknowledge this is the judgment you brought on us. You you put tumors on our bodies. We're putting now these... um, uh, tokens of tumors now back in the in the box to send to send to Yahweh. What about the mice though? That one's really kind of confusing. Well, if the same logic applies, it could be just like they they were struck with tumors. They might have been struck with something that we were not told in the previous chapter, and that would be a rodent infestation. Verse five says that your mice have ravaged the land. 
So that, that could be what's going on. And the number five, of course, represents each of the five major Philistine cities. So uh, they think that's going to do the trick. That will lighten the hand that has struck them three, three times. Do you notice the threefold repetition in uh, verse 5? Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you, from off your gods, and from off your land. But even in sending this back, they're still not admitting culpability here or, or guilt. They want to leave room for the possibility that maybe they weren't beat by this God after all. And so they, accept, they suggest, the priest suggests, that the ark be put, uh, uh, put on a cart and that cart be drawn by um, cows that have never worn a yoke. In other words, cows that don't understand directions that well, cows that have no idea what they're doing. And they say, and yet, if these cows are able to make it back to Israel, we'll know that Yahweh's real and Yahweh's right. But then they say, and, and here you see, they're, they're stacking the, the deck in their favor. They say, but if those cows somehow can't make it back to Israel, well, then clearly it's just a coincidence. That's what they say at the end of uh, verse 9. We shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It just happened by coincidence. Right? Uh, and this is peak stupidity to conclude that Yahweh must not be real because two cows that have never traveled before can't make it uh, you know, safely to another country um, because they don't know how to use the GPS system. Well, therefore, God must not be real. It's just, it's ridiculous what they're doing. But of course, they are made to look the fools because what happens? These stupid cows actually make it back to Israel. Right? They, they find their way back to uh, the people of God. The Israelites are vindicated. The Philistines are shamed when the ark wheels its way into Beth Shemesh in verse 12. So the ark has remained in Philistine territory for seven months. Seven. That's this biblical um, uh, number of fullness. The idea is that God's judgment, God's wrath has rested on the people. It's come uh, to completion. God's wrath has come upon his enemies fully, entirely. And this is always the way it will be, and this is what we need to remember, that God doesn't just kind of punish sins. He punishes sins entirely. Uh, sins don't get judged a little. They don't get judged lightly. The holiness of God demands that every offense against his majesty is met with the full response of his glory and the full response of his power. And there are no free passes when it comes to that. Not even if you would consider yourself to belong to the people of God. That's the next thing we see, how God's judgment even comes against his own people, which surprises us. It sobers us up that there are no free passes when it comes to the fact that every sin demands God's full response, the response of his glory and power. So, so the ark comes into uh, verses uh, 12 and, and following. The, the ark comes into this... Israelite territory, Beth Shemesh, it's kind of like a demilitarized zone between uh, Philistia and Israel, but it's occupied by by Israelites. And there's farmers, they're working out in the field, and they lift up their heads and they see this strange sight. I mean, can you imagine how bizarre this would have been for them, but exciting at the same time? They see these cows that they're lowing in the streets and and they just happen to be carting behind them the Ark of the Covenant of all things. It's, It's miraculous. Uh, soon word spreads, we're told in verse 15, that the, the, the Levites have been summoned because they're the ones who know how to properly handle the ark and can lead the people in a great worship service, and that's what happens. They sacrifice sacrifices on that day um, to the Lord. 
But then, seemingly with no warning or very little explanation, look at verse 19. And he, that is the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The heavy hand of the Lord that was previously on the Philistines is now on the Israelites. The word for uh, struck in um, uh, this, this uh, verse, verse 19, he struck some of the men. Uh, in the Old English, it would be smote. It's not a light slap. It is a heavy, heavy blow. Um, it's the verb that's found in Exodus 12 that describes what the angel of death would do to all the firstborn in Egypt. That's what's taking place here. That sort of heaviness, that sort of seriousness. Um, moreover, it's the verb used in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel to describe how God struck the Philistines. Right. So the judgment that had been directed towards God's enemies is now directed at his own people. Why? Well, the text tells us. What does it say? Verse 19, he struck some of the men because, what, they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Something more is implied here than what the farmers did out in the field. They lift up their heads and they saw the ark coming to them. That's, that's not what, what happens here. And uh, key to understanding the offense is the preposition upon, or it would be into, if you're reading the King James Version, um, or inside, if you're reading the NIV. Uh, the idea could be that they literally looked into the ark. They removed the cover and they looked inside the box. And if that is the case, then the judgment that comes upon them has been predicted, has been uh, foretold back in Numbers chapter 4. There were clear instructions given um, that nobody was ever to look inside the ark. Um, other instructions said that only the Levites were ever to handle the ark. And even then, they weren't, nobody was ever to touch it directly. You remember that story? of another time the ark is being uh, transported and, and the cart stumbles and Uzzah reach out, reaches out to grab it and he's killed. Why? Because Numbers 4 said nobody can touch it. Nobody. But then it also says that they were never, in Numbers 4 verse 20, never look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. Well, that would make some sense then if that's what took place. But it could also be that the people of Beth Shemesh were killed for a more subtle, though equally blasphemous, offense. It could be that they didn't look into the ark in an unauthorized manner, but that they looked at the ark in an unholy manner. It might be that they didn't look into it, but that they just looked at it in an unholy manner. Because the Hebrew could be uh, referring to gazing at or, or peering at, maybe the way you would... Um, some exhibit at a museum. It was as though the ark was just a curiosity, uh, something that was neat. Oh, that, that's cool. Um, for these people in the far-flung reaches of Israelite territory who probably never expected to get very close to the ark in their lifetime, now they find it in their backyard. It had become almost something like a tourist attraction. They would look at it like you or I might look at the, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. It's, it's a... Uh, a national uh, treasure for them. That's how they were treating it. 
not as a manifestation of God's majesty, but just something that was kind of cool. Uh, they assumed that God was for them because they were the Israelites after all, and therefore they could treat him however they wished. But God, friends, God will never allow his glory to be abused by any, not his enemies and not even those who would call himself their pe- uh, his people, call themselves his people. So if that's the proper reading, not that they necessarily looked into it, but they looked at it in an unholy manner, and I do think that is the, the um, idea that's meant to be conveyed here, then the judgment dealt by God is even more startling because it means that their sin, and listen, this is really important, so we're all listening now. It means that their sin wasn't so much a defiant act of the will as it was actually the drifting apathy of the heart. And why is that more startling for us? Because we've all done that, haven't we? It's not that it was a defiant act of the will. Some of us are very uh, good Christians. We do what God says. We show up when we're supposed to show up. We, We go through the motions. We are good people. But maybe that's not what God is judging the people for, for, for blatantly disobeying him as it is that they have actually just drifted, drifted from honoring him the way they should in their hearts. Are we not prone to such sins? Are we never guilty of treating God like a trinket? Are we never guilty of treating the things of God like a passing curiosity and not beholding them with the attention or the affection that they deserve? Well, of course we are. We all do that. And that means that God's judgment would rightly fall upon us too, just as it falls upon the citizens of Beth Shemesh. So what do we do? What does one do when the realization dawns on them that God's judgment rightly will fall upon them someday? There's really only one of two responses. When you realize that God is the judge and he judges all, that nobody gets a free pass, there's only one of two responses. One response is this. Here's the first response. To run away from him. To try to get away from him. To run from God. That's the path the Philistines chose. And now it's the one the Israelites choose. Look at verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up away from us? Who can we give him to? Who will take this, this, this ark away from us? Because we can't stand, we can't bear to have the holy God in our midst. They're trying to run away from him. Uh, they recognize rightly that they can't stand before a righteous God. They got their theology correct there. Uh, then they forgot something that uh, we call the omnipresence of God, right? He's everywhere. You can't run away from him. Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? Remember, the psalmist says that. God is, God is immense. That means he fills all space. There's nowhere you can go where you can say, well, God can't reach me here. And yet the people of God sound just like the Philistines. Let's get him off to the next city, be rid of him, be rid of that feeling of guilt that, that is evoked every time that, that he comes near well, the people of Jesus' day, they made that same mistake with him. 
when the reality of Jesus' glory and holiness and majesty came to bear upon the uh, people of the Gerasenes uh, through the healing of a demoniac, do you remember what their response was? Mark five seventeen. they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Remember that? That's natural. That's the natural man's instinct to meeting God. I never want to meet him again. I never want to meet him again. A natural man's reaction to the reality of God is to get God away. But dear friend, you need to know that running away from God doesn't actually make God go away. Nor does it make your sin go away. Nor does it delay the coming judgment of God. So if it's true that we cannot stand before God, and yet the answer is not running away from him, then what's the other answer? So there's only one of two options, right? And the first option we've seen doesn't work. You can't run away from him. What do you do? Do you see the dilemma? I can't stand before him, nor can I run away from him. Then what should I do? You must run to him. When you realize, when your eyes are open to see your sin, and you say, I cannot stand before this holy God, the answer of faith is to say, so therefore I must embrace him. I can't stand before him. I can't say, look at me, look at all I've done. I can't run away from him and says, look, he'll never see me again. No, I must run to him and say, look at you and all that you are to me in Christ Jesus. That's all I need. You don't run away from him. You run to him and you embrace him in the person of Jesus Christ. It is only the God who sends judgment who actually can save from judgment. That's the remarkable thing. That the judge is the savior. And the people of Kiriath-Jerim there at the beginning of chapter 7, they knew that bringing the Ark of God into their region was a serious matter. It meant that God's direct majesty and, and holiness was going to be right there with them. But notice how they respond with reverence and awe, right? They establish a, 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 a priest, Eleazar, is going to have charge of the Ark. And, and they, they deal with it in a holy matter. Well, when you deal with the reality of God in a, a similar fashion... When you don't treat God like a trinket, like a toy, uh, like a, a passing fad, but when you receive him in reverence and awe, then you will learn that God's presence is always, always, always a blessing. God's presence is always a blessing. Will he judge? Yes. Will he always save? Always. Do you ever have to fear? Never. Never. Though the psalmist could not have known how this could be so, the psalmist did know that it was so. I'm talking about Psalm 130. And here we read that he affirms that no one can stand before God, that we're all sinners. And yet his confidence is to run to this God. Do you remember this verse from Psalm 130? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And yet with you there is forgiveness, that you should be feared, that you should be adored, that you should be loved. Well, the characters in our chapter feared God, and they fled. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. The true believer fears God and falls before him. Because the true believer says, with you and with you alone is forgiveness. And that's the thing I need. If I stand before you, I'm stuck in my guilt. If I run from you, I'm stuck in my guilt. But if I fall before you, 
if I embrace you, if I say you are the all in all, then I'm actually cleansed and cleared of my guilt. And I'm claimed by Christ forever and ever. The psalmist couldn't have understood how this was so. That with you there is forgiveness. He just knew that it was so. Well, we, on this side of the cross, know how it's so. And it's Jesus. That is the answer. God's judgment, though it rightfully comes on his enemies, and even people who would claim to be his, it will not fall on the faithful, because God's judgment has also come upon his son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as the atonement, as the sacrifice for our sin. God put his son forward to receive the judgment that we all deserve. Why? So that we could receive the grace of God and be justified. And so who is God to you today? Is he somebody to be feared? Somebody, is he a nuisance like he was to the Philistines, a problem that you need to get rid of? Does his holiness um, irk you? Does that, does that cause a problem for you? Is he somebody uh, to be afraid of and, and only to be afraid of? Does his judgment terrify you and nothing else? I want you to know today there is one way and one way only to escape the wrath and the judgment of God a way that he himself has provided. And it's not by running away from him, it's by running to him through a full-hearted repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the substitute who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's praise him. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that sins have to be dealt with and nobody gets a free pass and yet there is one who has come and has represented us. All the judgment for our sins has fallen upon him at the cross, and we are indeed spared. Everlasting life is laid before us because we have been justified by your grace as a gift. We thank you for that gift. We ask that you would speed our steps to run to you, never to run from you, to recognize and to understand that when you reveal your holiness and the reality of your judgment and our sin, that it's not to scare us. Um, it's, it's not to, to bring terror to us, but it's a mercy of yours so that we can find salvation where you have placed it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So make this true of all of us, Lord. Would we turn to him for the first time today, if not for the 100th time? Uh, make him our perfect Savior, which we know he is. We pray this in his name. Amen.